Welcome to Behavior Groups, the podcast that brings you behavioral insights on your marketing campaigns. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. But wait, 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 Kurt. What do you mean by the podcast that brings you behavioral insights on your marketing campaigns? Aren't we all about the applying behavioral science to work and life? Yes, yes. <laughs> and okay, we right. explore insights into what will make your marketing campaigns more successful. And we do that, Tim, by talking with knowledgeable and highly experienced experts, academics, and authors about the very best practices in the marketing industry. It's all just part of the larger picture, Mr. Hulan. All just part of the larger picture. Okay. All right. I think I see where you're going here. That marketing is just one of the many areas that behavioral science insights can make a difference for our listeners. And, of course, it's just one of the many areas that we talk about yes. on the program. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And I have to say that this episode does focus on marketing, absolutely, but the insights are applicable across a lot of different areas, not just marketing. That is so true, and we will explore that in more detail in our grooving session, but... But let's get on with the show right now. And and so for this episode, we speak with the remarkable Nancy Harhut. Nancy is co-founder and chief creative officer at HBT Marketing, a consultancy that specializes in applying behavior techniques to marketing. And Tim, I have to tell you, Nancy knows her, her stuff. I was going to say another word oh. there, but I said stuff instead. <laughs> okay. You know, um, I'm good with either word, but stuff works for me, and she sure does. I couldn't agree more. She uh, and I have followed each other on LinkedIn for many years. And I got to tell you, it was such a pleasure to get to speak with her in person, to get that passion in her voice firsthand, and to hear her speak with such clarity about the applications of behavioral science, especially in marketing, of course. And it was just really fun, really cool. Yeah. And, and we think you'll hear the same thing, listeners. In our conversation with Nancy, we talked about a lot of different things, but we want to call attention to a couple that we think you'll find particularly interesting. Rhyme as reason effect and the nine effect. You're just going to have to listen and wait. There you go. Ooh, ooh, it's going to be good. Mm -hmm. And if you like what you hear on Behavioral Grooves, week in and week out for the past 288 weeks, or or roughly something like that, (laughs) (laughs) then please share it with a friend. Pass it along to a colleague, a teammate, a coworker, or a marketing executive that you think needs to hear about the applications of behavioral science. Aren't colleague, teammate, and coworker the same thing, Tim? Uh, okay, yeah, I guess so. I just thought the list needed to be longer. So. <laughs> your compatriot, your <laughs> yes, uh, fellow countryman, your fellow... <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Okay, groomers, it's time to sit back with your three-finger pour of a great marketing ideas and enjoy our conversation with Nancy Harhut. Nancy Harhut, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Tim, thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. And we are so glad to have you after, my gosh, all these years of connecting over social media. It's really good to actually see you and talk to you in person. It's really fun. Okay, but we're going to start with the speed round, and I, I have to know, coffee or tea? Tea. Tea, day in and day out. Oh, my gosh. Yes. You just made a friend with Tim. Totally. There you go. <laughs> totally. I, yeah, I Love don't it. like coffee. I've tried. Uh, you know, we, a couple of times we had coffee-related accounts, and so you'd go to the client meeting, oh. and, you know, and I'd be trying to choke it down, and it just, uh, yeah, it's, it's not right for me. So, T-T-T. Uh, bravo to you. I'm on the same track there. That's, that's, that's perfect. Okay, Kurt. All right, second speed round question. Dinner with your favorite musician or actor? Probably my favorite actor. Hmm. And that was a that was a little yeah. hard. You know, yeah. Where who would that who might that be? Well, see, that's why it's hard. It's like it's hard to zero in on a favorite musician, and it's hard to zero in on a, on a favorite actor. Actually, you know, if if I could if I could change my answer and sure. choose sure. like my favorite lyricist, I Ooh. would be like around the. Stephen Schwartz, Stephen Sondheim, Frank Lesser. Like, I love Broadway musicals. So Apparently that's, so. I think, that's where I would go. Apparently uh, so, yeah. God, those that, are that. I mean, when you put Frank Lesser and Stephen Sondheim in the same sentence, it just elevates. Like, I feel like everything that we're going to say now just got better. 
<laughs> I think that's fantastic. I think that's awesome. Okay. Um, so here, here, this is a true-false question. Okay. So true or false, behavioral science has many applications for marketers. Absolutely true. Absolutely, absolutely true. Well, and we are going to spend some time on that today, definitely. All right. So I have a choice between two questions that we wrote out here. Um, I'm going to ask Mr. Houlihan if uh, part A or part B, which one do you think we should go with here? I thought part B was just really kind of cool. Okay, we'll go with part B. All right. So, all right, Nancy. If a book contains information on the Zygarnik effect, is it going to be a bestseller? If a book contains information on the Zygarnik effect, is it going to be a bestseller? Uh, I, I, I suppose it depends on how well it's written. And uh... <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, we were trying because you have uh, – it's actually in one of the titles of one of your chapters. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I love books that talk about the Zygarnik effect. And so there you go. Well, so well, for me, you. it would be a bestseller just because you have that included in. But... Oh, Kurt, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so with that, uh, we are here to talk about your book, uh, Using Behavioral Science in Marketing, Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses. So this is a book, it's, it's aimed at marketers, right? If you were, is that, the, is that the intent? It's absolutely aimed at marketers. And in fact, I, you know, I want to say to anyone who, you know, is a marketer or who, who has marketing on their to-do list because there are marketers and then there are people who are doing a lot of things including marketing and, and it's really meant for you know for all of them and you know when you hear science in the title you know you might kind of back off a little and think ooh this is going to be a little weighty my eyes are going to roll back in my head you know and uh, and the truth of the matter is it's it's short on science it has just enough science to give you the proof points that you need that you know the legitimacy that you know that you think okay I'm in the right place but it's really more about providing those actionable uh, tactics, so that practical advice that a marketer can use to increase the likelihood that they're going to get the engagement and response that they want. There's there's no silver bullet. There's no magic wand. You cannot force people to do something they don't want to do. But there's a lot of wiggle room in terms of how people make decisions. And if you happen to know a little bit about behavioral science, you can, you know, kind of put a finger on the scale, I guess you can say. You can you can make it more likely that you're going to be able to connect with the people you want to connect with and make it more likely that you're going to persuade them to do what you want them to do. Yeah, I love this, uh, that you, you, you start kind of with this basic premise that just because we have these tools doesn't mean that it's not mind control. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not forcing people to do things that they, they wouldn't do. And maybe more importantly, you didn't write this just for people who are full-time marketers. I love the way that you frame this, people who have marketing on their to-do list. Like they have to do some marketing. They have to do some kind of promotion. Tell us more about who who you think can benefit from the book. So, you know, it's anybody, anyone from people who are in ad agencies who are creating, you know, marketing materials all the time to people in a, you know, a company that are in a marketing department to entrepreneurs or small business people, you know, uh, people running small businesses where, you know, marketing is one thing on a, on a list of things that they need to attend to, not-for-profits, uh, you know, really it's just any, and then you, we can almost, and several people have told me this that have read the book, they're like, you know, you say it's, you know, behavioral science for marketing, but this is such powerful stuff that really anybody who is in a position where they need to convince someone or persuade someone mm-hmm. should read this book. So it certainly, you know, extends to sales. But even beyond that, just, you know, in your normal life, as you're going about your career, as you're going about your personal life, you know, you're going to be in a position where you're going to try to convince someone to see things your way, to do what you'd like to do. And there are, you know, techniques and tactics and, and tips in the book that are scientifically proven, that are market tested, uh, that are going to make it more likely that you'll be able to uh, to get a yes, to get that yeah. answer you're looking for. It's interesting because as I was reading the book, that's what came to my mind. And actually what came to my mind, and this is probably the availability bias because Tim and I work in this field and we talk to people who love behavioral science all the time and various different things, but I'm like going marketing Marketing, don't all marketers already use behavioral science? I mean, it was, it, it, and again, this comes from the experience that we've seen. When we were working with companies, uh, the people who were actually applying behavioral science inside those companies were mostly marketers. They were the advertising, you know, Ogilvy, the advertising agencies that were bringing a big focus in on this. And then it was the people like in HR and in sales operations where Tim and I worked a lot that were like, what is this stuff? And then you go, well, the people over in marketing are already using it, you know? So 
is there still a big untapped uh, market of of marketers? And is it just me being biased by the people I talk to? So I think maybe you're a little bit more plugged in. You know, I, I think that you're absolutely right in that, you know, behavioral science is tailor-made for marketing. Like at the end of the day, marketers are trying to convince people to do something, right? We're trying to influence behavior, and behavioral science is all about how to influence behavior, you know, why people do what they do and, um, you know, the decision defaults that they rely on. And if marketers start to learn about that, can get out ahead of it, you know, we can use it to our advantage. And so you would say, you know, well, marketing is all about influencing people. Behavioral science is all about influencing people. Aren't, you know, haven't the marketers been using it? And the truth of the matter is, in, in my opinion, at least, it's relatively new to the to the field. You know, my roots were uh, way back in direct marketing, actually, and we mm-hmm. did an awful lot of testing. And, you know, we tested our way into what would work. And I look back on some of the things that we did, and I can see the behavioral science that was at play there. But I, I can virtually guarantee you in some cases that um, – that was not what we were applying at the time. We didn't know we were applying it. We had a hunch. We had a sense for what might work. We tested our way into something. Maybe it was serendipitous that we stumbled upon something. I, I mean, I can go way back to when AT&T broke up, right? AT&T mm-hmm. used to be the long-distance company, you know, monopoly. And then the Judge Green decision came down around 1982 or something like that. And and it broke it up. And so all of a sudden you saw Sprint and MCI pop up. And I happened to be working at an agency at the time where we were um, representing AT&T. And my boss, the creative director at the time, was a guy named Frank Parrish. And he'd been struggling with the lead to this letter. So we'd been like writing to businesses saying, you need to choose a long distance company. You need to choose a long distance company. There was, you know, this period in time called pre-subscription where the, you know, AT&T was broken up. People had to choose whether they want to stay with AT&T or move to Sprint or move to MCI, but they had to make a choice. And, you know, we were hammering away people, you know, hammering people with this information. And it was getting close to the end of that period. And at the end of that period, if you didn't make a choice, you know, uh, one was going to be made for you. And that was where he ended up. He, you know, he's trying to figure out what to say, what to say, what to say. And we, you know, talked about, you know, you've been with us for a long time. We know you, you can rely on us. We, you know, you, uh, we have all these advantages, you know, all the stuff, the benefits, everything you would, you know, think to talk about. But then he hit on this line where he opened a letter saying, you have a decision to make, and if you don't make one soon, one will be made for you. And he got a 38.6% response rate, which was unheard of, right? I mean, it it was incredible. And I remember the day that he came in because he'd been, like, worrying it and worrying it, and he finally had it. And he came in and he told me, and I remember thinking – Oh yeah, that's pretty good. Like I didn't, I didn't really realize <laughs> how brilliant it was, you know. And years later, I thought I'm like, oh my god. And he was using something known as the autonomy bias, which is the, you know, the, you know, human deep seated desire to exercise some kind of control over ourselves and our environment. You know, we want some kind of agency. And you know, I talked to him about it. You know, when I was writing the book, I'm like, Frank, like, you know, how did you, how did you come up with this? Do you remember it? First of all, he goes, oh, I remember it well. And um, he said it, it took me you know, probably two weeks to write that lead and then maybe a couple of hours to finish the rest of the letter, you know, but he'd been trying and trying and trying. And he said, you know, back then you would think there'd be all this great data because, you know, AT&T had been the only game in town and so they had all the customers so they should know everything, but yet they, they really didn't, or at least we didn't have access to it. And he said, so I didn't know if I was talking to small businesses or large corporations. I, I had no idea. But all I knew, all I or all I suspected was if you were in business, you didn't want someone else telling you what to do. And that's yeah. what led him to that line. And I, just, I thought it was amazing. You know, that is amazing. It's magnificent, actually. And it brings me to to thinking about measurement and how oftentimes, again, in, in the work that Kurt and I have done together with clients, there's oftentimes a question about, well, how will you, how will we know that this works? You know, what's the, what's the proof point? How are we going to measure this in a way that you're going to demonstrate that this crazy idea, this behavioral science stuff is actually going to work? How do you, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about the application, if you would, for just a minute. And how do you set up an environment where you can measure and then demonstrate that the behavioral science lens or tools actually brought about some kind of benefit? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a couple of different ways to do it. You know, one is a, is a very strict, you know, um, head-to-head test where you ha- you identify one variable and, you know, you, you put two pieces out there, maybe, you know, two digital ads or two emails, and there's only, you know, one thing that's different. Maybe you you have one different, you know, word in the, uh, in the subject line or you have one subject line versus another subject line, you know, um, and it, it's very specific, one, you know, one isolated uh, variable. Uh, and then, you know, the other way to look at it is just kind of 
can you beat the control? So here's a piece, the email, the direct mail piece, the ad, whatever that's been, you know, doing really, really well. Historically, it's the best performing thing. Can you go out and challenge it and beat it? You know, or uh, you look at, you know, um, performance at a certain time, you know, like the performance, you know, last Christmas versus this Christmas. Last Christmas, we use that. This Christmas, we use this. And of course, the problem with that is the time is different. You know, I mean, yeah. there, there are other variables that get introduced. But typically, what we do is we go up against a control for our clients. They're like, all right, they'll come to us and say, this is what we have. This has been working the best. We've tested several things against it. So far, nothing has beaten it because controls are difficult to beat. But, you know, take a take a shot at it. And, you know, we'll go in with a, you know, a combination of behavioral science plus um, marketing best practices, put those two together, create what we think is going to be the most effective piece of communication, and then they'll test it against what's historically been performing for them. The two go head to head in the market and um, one of them wins, right? And, uh, you know, so you can, if, if it happens to be what we did, you can point to it and say, well, it was the behavioral science, you know, infused or informed messaging, but you can't necessarily in a situation like that point to the single word or the single phrase that, that did it, you know, you know, the other way is, like I said, you have the ex- exact same email, the exact same subject line, but only one word is different or, or the, or the exact same email, but two different subject lines. And so you can at least point to the subject line, you know, um, you talk about, we were talking earlier about loss aversion before we went on air, but. You see that pretty commonly, this idea of uh, people are being more motivated to avoid the pain of loss than to achieve the pleasure of gain, although in marketing, we often double down on the gains. Yeah. So you could test something like, you know, you know, the idea of uh, order now and save $300, or you could test that against wait and you'll pay $300 more tomorrow. You know, so it's like, you know, do we want to talk about the, the savings, you know, the benefit, or do we want to say if you wait, you're going to have to pay more, which would be more loss aversion, you know. And uh, so slightly different language, but you've definitely identified the behavioral science there and you see what works. A colleague of mine tested something. His client was working selling ISO certifications. And so he literally had it down to one word. He tested ISO certification, will your company pass? ISO certification, will your company fail? So it was literally down to one word, (laughs) fail representing loss aversion. And and the loss aversion version won, you know? Oh, my gosh. I think I think Tim had a hidden agenda there because he's trying to figure out how he can measure his own in his new position. He's like trying to take notes on, oh, I can use that and I can use that. I got to show the value that I bring to my Come organization on. here. Come on. I got that wired. Come on. <laughs> oh, Nancy, one of the things that I loved about this book is you bring in um, a, a variety of different behavioral science, insights, biases, various different pieces. And as you said at the, up at the beginning, you... It's less about the science, although I do say you bring in a lot of really good science. So it's not like it's not light on science. It's 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 there. Um, but you talk about the application and how do you do this? And you use a lot of case studies and a lot of really great insights on that. One of the one of the chapters and each chapter kind of covers a couple different, you know, um, biases and kind of gets into a deep into one of them. one of them that I loved was this about framing. And we've talked a lot about framing on this on the show, but your chapter was actually called Labeling and Framing. And so for our listeners, can you describe what the difference is between framing and labeling and when or why would I what's the difference and why would I care? Sure, sure. I, you know, and I, I put them together because they are kind of similar. But um, the research into labeling shows that uh, if you label somebody as part of a group, they'll start to automatically behave as if they're part of that group, even if they hadn't previously thought of themselves that way. So I thought that's really an interesting, you know, thing for marketers to know, because, you know, if you tell someone that they're part of a group, they're going to start to behave like it. It's like, wow, that's like, that's almost gold to us, right? And there was some research that was done where, um, I think uh, it was done in Chicago with with an election coming up and uh, people were interviewed you know, sensibly about the ballot questions and the candidates and, you know, just kind of their voting history, all of that. But then they were arbitrarily divided into two groups, just randomly put into one group or another. And the researchers went to one group and said, you guys are the more politically active. And then they watched to see what would happen a few days later when it was time to go to the polls. And when they found what they found was 15 percent more of those people who were told they were more politically active actually showed up to vote because that's what you do, right? If you're someone who's politically active, you you show up and vote. And that was really the only difference. Some people were told they were, some people weren't and had nothing to do with the, their past behaviors or the way they answered the, you know, the questions. So when you think about it in, in marketing, that opens up possibilities for us because we're trying to get people to behave in a certain way, like our current customers behave. For example, we're trying to get our prospects to behave like our current customers. So labeling them as part of that group, you know, you're, um, 
you know, you're a connoisseur of fine wines if, if you happen to be selling wines or, you know, you're somebody who, you know, recognizes a smart business opportunity and you're not afraid to seize it. But, you know, saying things like that where people start to feel like, ooh, that's me, you know, and if, if, if I'm, you know, if I am a member of someone, you know, of a group that appreciates fine wine, well, obviously I'm going to take advantage of this great opportunity to buy this case or, or whatever. So, um, so I think there's, you know, there's real opportunity there. And then framing, you know, could be a little, you know, it's related for, for sure, but it's just the, um, the way we look at something. I mean, the classic example is, uh, this glass is half empty, this glass is half full. How I'm framing it, uh, how I describe it kind of influences how you're going to think about it, you know, it, it you know, because of what I've said about it, it's going to color the way you think about it. So, you know, it's it's ideal for marketers when they're maybe trying to take something that could potentially be, you know, a bit of a liability and you turn it into something that makes you think of it in, in just the opposite way. You know, a, a, a crowded restaurant is, is cozy, you know, mm. a, a, a noisy restaurant is lively. Uh, you know, so things that, you know, so you just, it's just, it's kind of, um, just getting you to, to look at things a different way by the framing that, that you're using. Uh, you know, we did a piece for a, um, a client and they were selling patient lending. It was for dentists and it was, um, ways for the, the dental customers to take out a loan. And, uh, we did some research and what we found is a, most dentists already had some kind of a patient financing system in, in place and B, they all kind of felt like six of one, half a dozen of another, right? Yeah. So it's like, all right, that's a, that's a tough thing to do. You, you can't argue that you need one because they already have one. And it's hard to argue that ours is different because they're, they don't even want to get beyond, I already have one. So trying to tell them, no, 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 wait, ours is different. We, we can't even get our foot in the door to say that because you say patient financing system and they're like, no, no, we're done. Check that off the list. On to the next thing. <laughs> so, you know, we, we tried this approach where we said something like, you know, because you're a doctor who cares about your patients, you should be interested in this. And we led with that, you know, kind of like, you know, labeling them that way or, or you know, if you if you want kind of like turning, you know, framing this not as this is great for, um, you know, for your practice, but this is going to be great for your patients and because you care about your patients, you know. So it's kind of a, a little bit of both. I mean, it was probably more labeling than it was framing, honestly. But, yeah. um, but we got like a 65% lift over the control using that because it kind of broke through and it was like, you know, yeah, you're right. They, they are. I already have one, and I think of them as pretty much the same. But now you're telling me that this is actually going to be better for my patients. It might not really make any difference for me in the practice, but for my patients, and that's what I got into this business for. So it's um, it's kind of a nice example there, and and uh, certainly moves the needle for our clients. Yeah, we just had a we just interviewed Jonah Berger. His his episode will be coming out soon, and he you know has a new book called Magic Words. And again, that very component of asking or labeling the identity. And so it gets into this concreteness of the words that you're using about how they describe themselves or their desired self and tapping into the the power of that self-identity to move me into action, which is the piece that you're just talking about. And I think it's fantastic and uh, a really great insight. So. Yeah, yeah. There's that. So I think he's probably going to, he probably talks about, or he probably will talk about, because I think he wrote about it, the noun identity effect. You know, instead of using the verb, you use the noun, which is, which is awesome. Um, but Kurt, it just dawned on me, I, I have a better example for, um, for framing. And it came out of, um, I think it was a New Zealand beer company. And they were using the byproduct of brewing beer to create a biofuel. So suddenly, the idea of drinking beer wasn't like, you know, something that you did to enjoy yourself or to blow off steam. They, they framed the idea of having a glass of beer as helping to save the environment, helping to, sa- helping to save the world. And, um, so it's like, it just gets you to think of it in a completely different way, you know? And I think that's, that's a good example of framing. And I, they were, they were operating in a, declining market and i think they managed to get sales up like 10 percent or something uh which is a pretty interesting story you know well we're gonna have to go have a beer now because we got to go save the world yeah. so there you go export i think was the name of the of the beer but yeah i think we should all do it in new zealand we'll meet up there next week how about that if i have a vote uh just let's just play this is fun actually just talking about some of the the more um it is a little behavioral sciencey and i don't want to get too far away from the application but before we before we went live you, you were talking about the rhyme is reason effect and about how absolutely powerful and delightful it is and how it's just not being leveraged these days could you could you talk a little bit about that nancy 
Absolutely, Tim. Yeah, so there's uh, there's something that behavioral scientists have uh, found called rhyme is reason bias, or the rhyme is reason effect, and um, this guy named uh, Matt McGlone, a researcher, I think he's out of uh, University of Texas in Austin, if I'm not mistaken, but he did a deep dive into it, and what he found is you can have two sentences that basically say the same thing, basically convey the same information, and an example that he used was, uh, woes unite foes, or woes unite enemies, right? Foes, enemies, they're, they're the same, you know, woes, I mean, it means the same thing. It conveys the same information, but people will judge the rhyming phrase to be the more accurate, more truthful phrase. And, um, and that's the idea of, um, rhyme is reason bias. You know, people, because the, the rhyming phrases are easier for the human brain to process, it just, it just feels right, right? We process it faster, it feels right. And when something feels right for us as people, it's not a big leap to assume that it is right. And so when you think about, you know, slogans or strap lines or taglines or theme lines for, for campaigns, what a great opportunity to have something that rhymes. Although it could also be your, your um doesn't have to be your tagline. It could be your subject line or your headline. Or it could be the, you know, the title of your content, whether it's a white paper or a webinar. But, you know, if it rhymes, not only is it easier to recall, which is bonus number one or, or advantage number one, but then advantage number two, which is arguably more important, is people have a tendency to believe it more. So, you know, if you can manage to, for example, write a headline where um, you know, you're saying something about your company and it rhymes, you know, 80% of people will read a headline. Maybe only 20% will read the body copy. So it puts the onus on us as marketers to really make those headlines work. If you could figure out a way to probably, you know, bake in a benefit or, you know, a competitive advantage in your headline in a way that rhymes, that's like, uh, you know, that's a real win for you. People are going to remember it and they're going to believe it. This is, this is, I thank you for, that was a great explanation and thank you for kind of covering the most salient aspects of this effect isn't just it's easy to, to remember because that, that's the, the cleverness and the ease of remembering is important, especially when it comes to brand recognition, even brand consideration probably. But to explain it with the second aspect of that people perceive it as being more accurate, more true, like there's actually more truth in it. That's amazing that our brains process it not just as, oh, I can remember it, but I can process it as more true, more accurate. It's an amazing leap to, you know, and, and yet our brains make it instantaneously. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's easier for us to retrieve it. And because it's easier yeah. to retrieve it, it, you know, it feels right. And like I said, it's not a big leap to assume it is right. I mean, imagine you're, I don't know, you're in the grocery, you're in the grocery store, you're standing in the paper towel aisle, and there, there's all these different paper towels. But then you see, oh, Bounty, the quicker picker upper, and you think, well, that's the one I'm going to get because, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, I want to stop those spills quickly. I don't want the, you know, the liquid spilling off the table and onto the floor, you know, whatever it is, you, you, you know, or, or maybe you're in the battery aisle and it's um, Duracell, no battery is stronger longer. And, you, you know, you think to yourself, you know, it's bad enough I have to be here buying batteries because, you know, my battery <laughs> died at the, at the wrong moment, you know, but you right, know, make sure right. it doesn't happen again, right? You know, so it's uh, that, that recall can actually be very uh, helpful for marketers, you know, in, in terms of, you know, not just uh, remembering the brand, but, you know, at point of sale to actually get that purchase. Well, and it's interesting because we, before we went on air, we were talking about this and the concept that in the 70s and 80s, it seemed like that was used a lot more. Right? The, the couple that you just mentioned, I think, have been around for a long, long time. And they, it not as used, not used as much today, at least that's the appearance on, on my side. Is, is that the case from what you're seeing as well? And, and why do you think that might be? Yeah, I, I don't think it's used as much. In fact, the, the two that I mentioned, the, the Duracell and the Bounty Quicker Picker, they've been around for, for a little while, but, yeah. um, but not nearly as long, uh, you know, as, as some of like, uh, Nationwide is on your side. That came out in the 60s, right? And they yeah. stuck by it. Yeah. yeah. Or, um, Folgers, uh, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup and they set that to music, right, yeah. Tim? They set that to music and, Thank uh, goodness. um, Thank so that's, goodness. But I mean, that's it. I think when that first, that also came out in the sixties, when it first came out, I remember reading this, uh, Folgers trailed behind Maxwell House. After they introduced the, the tagline, the rhyming tagline, not only did they close the gap, they actually overtook Maxwell House eventually. And I'm sure it had, you know, to do with a lot of things, not just the tagline, but it's an interesting contributor, right? Um, I don't, you know, when I was growing up, yeah, there was, uh, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief yeah. it is for Pepto-Bismol. And there was, um, Timex watches, takes a licking and keeps on ticking, you know, and, and there'd be, uh, there'd be great ads around these too. I mean, uh, Joel Sedelmeyer was a director who did, um, the Pepto-Bismol ads for a while and they were incredible, you know, they were yeah. like, they were so good, you know? 
Well, and, and we can remember them to this day. And we right? can I remember mean, that, is, yes. These are things that we, I haven't heard plop, plop, fizz, fizz in years, but if you would have asked me Pepto-Bismol, I could have come up with that. That is that recall piece that you talked about. And, yeah, it's just, it's amazing to me. And, and to that point, um, I think it's an underused aspect in today's world. Yeah, and, and I don't know why. That was the other part of your question. I'm not, I don't know whether yeah. people just thought it was kind of, trite or cutesy or old-fashioned i'm not sure why it fell out of favor but uh yeah. and there's you know there's uh some practicality to, to having something that rhymes from a marketing perspective yeah behavioral grooves is the cool cool i don't know we got to figure out some groove on what on, rhymes uh, with groove <laughs> we'll it's like figure orange it out. it's like <laughs> what rhymes with orange you know i feel like we we dug ourselves uh, a hole on that one Kurt. oh there we go anyway um so uh, the other, an, another part, and again, there's lots of really great insights in all yeah. of these chapters. Um, a couple that I uh, picked out for me that really made an impact is this idea in the, in the very last chapter they talk about, it's about time and time perception and that impact on buying behaviors. And one aspect that I found, so I, you know, we talk temporal discounting, we know, you know, future, past, you know, that kind of piece, so immediate is better than future, all of those aspects, but it was really interesting. Um, and I, hadn't thought about this before, but how birthdays impact purchases. And I wanted to get just you to tell our listeners a little bit about that and and help us uh, kind of take that information away. Yeah. So, you know, you've talked about temporal discounting, but there's there's another temporal that's important to us as, you know, marketers who apply behavioral science. And that's uh, the idea of temporal landmarks. And temporal landmarks are periods of time in someone's life that they feel are different than all the other periods of time in their life. And because they feel they're different, they kind of imbue them with, with special meaning. And um, so one example of a temporal landmark is is your birthday, because temporal landmarks are traditionally times when we kind of close the, the door or, or close the chapter on who we used to be, and we open the door or, or you know, open a, you know, the chapter on to the person we're going to be. So it's we feel like we have a fresh start. As a matter of fact, Katie Milkman and her colleagues refer to this as the fresh start effect, but we basically feel that, all right, that was who I used to be. You know, last year, maybe things didn't go so well. I didn't accomplish everything I wanted to. There were a few mistakes, a few missteps, you know, but, but this year, I'm going to be able to do it. You know, I've got a fresh start. It's a clean state. You know, I'm, I'm feeling empowered. And, and this is, you know, why it's so important for marketers because, you know, at these periods of, of, uh, temporal landmarks, people feel empowered. They feel that they can achieve their goals. They feel more open to trying something new, whether that's a new product or taking on a new behavior. And so that's a great time for us to um, to tap into them. And it could be, I mean, this, you know, New Year's Day is probably the granddaddy of all temporal landmarks, but it's, you know, it's it's times that are, you know, that are new beginnings. It could be a birthday, as you say. It could be starting a new job. It could be the start of a new week, right? You know, Mondays are our temporal landmarks. But but that's when people feel like, all right, it's, you know, I, I can do this. So uh, I did some work for AARP, and I noticed that they sent out an email. I didn't write it, but I loved it. It was a birthday email. They sent an email out to their members. They were wishing the members happy birthday, and then they were suggesting to the members that they start a new healthy walking routine. And I thought, that's brilliant, because on your birthday is when you're more likely to do that, probably more likely than almost any other day of the year, except for perhaps, I don't know, New Year's Day, right? You yeah. know, those New Year's resolutions. But, you know, it's, it's when you're feeling like, you know, I knew I should, you know, I know I should be doing this, but this is the time I'm going to do it. So um, so it's interesting. Hal Hirschfield and um, Adam Alter did some research uh, into what they called um, – nine enders, people whose birthdays, I'm sorry, whose ages ended in nine, 29, 39, 49, 59. And, um, and they found that there was a, you know, there was some interesting, uh, interesting data. So people were more likely to run a marathon for the first time at, at 29 versus 30, or at, uh, I think they were twice as likely and they were three times as likely at 49 versus 50. But then they also did some research into the Ashley Madison website, which is apparently where one goes if one wishes to have an extramarital affair. This is how I learned about it, their research. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, men were overrepresented by, I think, um, like it was like one in eight men had a birthday or had an uh, age of 29, 39, 49, or 59. They were overrepresented by like 14%, I think the yeah. uh, the number was. But so not only are we more open to trying something new, but apparently we're more open to trying someone new too. 
Okay. I think there's a procrastination part there, right? The idea of like, oh, before I'm 30, I'm going to do this. And then it just creeps up on you. And all of a sudden, well, I got to do it now because I made that commitment. Um, We're actually having Adam on the show um, pretty soon. So uh, we're going to interview him. We might bring up some of those questions as we're talking about about that as we go um, forward with that. Is there um, an element and want to take this to the broader perspective. So going back away from the, some of the specifics in your book, but just a general piece. Uh, are marketers trending toward integrating behavioral science more into their work, do you think, today than they have in the past? Kind of like, um, you know, maybe the fundamentals of psychology got informed advertisers in the 70s and 80s. Is, is behavioral science starting to weave its way more into the work that you guys see in in marketing? I think so, yes. I mean, there are certain companies that have, you know, that have brought behavioral science to the C-suite. You know, there's a chief behavioral science officer or if, if you know, if not that, it's a very senior level person who's representing uh, behavioral science. And uh, I've seen, you know, uh, different agencies. I mean, uh, Ogilvy, I think we'd mentioned earlier, has a huge behavioral science practice with uh, uh, Chris Graves and Rory Sutherland is, is uh, you know, all over it. And, and I've seen some smaller ones pop up as well, you know. So I, I think, uh, you know, when I talk about it, I talk about it as being a, a bit of an emerging discipline uh, for, you know, for marketing. But I think that it's growing. I think the interest is growing. And, um, you know, marketers are starting to apply behavioral science techniques and, and see what they can do for them. And, and pleased with the results, they're continuing along that, uh, that pathway. Is there anything that you think that marketers have been missing uh, by not applying behavioral science? Is there, are there any sort of big gaps or problems that you know behavioral science can help address, Nancy? Yeah, that that's a that's a good question, Tim. I think I think probably maybe two answers spring to mind. Um, I think one thing that we miss is uh, you know we go out, we do all of this research, we you know we survey our our customers and our prospects, and we have focus groups, and um, and you know we we get our answer and we run away and and we we work with it. And you know I used to sit behind the the mirror too and you know watch all that. And I think what we're you know what we need to realize is even though our customers and prospects think they're telling us why they do what they do, they really don't always know that there, there are other factors at play that influence people's decisions, and, and they're not even aware of them. So, you know, there was a time when we used to think, like, you're sitting there watching a focus group, and the biggest danger was if you had one person who was really, really talkative and really, really forceful, everyone just kind of falls in line with them, and we're like, ah, oh, you know, that's the biggest problem we have to try to mitigate for, the, the biggest thing we try to have to, we have to try to avoid. You know, we don't want one person just influencing everyone. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, while that is an issue, that's not the thing, the big thing we have to worry about. What we, what we have to appreciate is uh, people will tell us what they believe is the truth. They're not really trying to lie to us. They're not trying to appease us or, you know, make us like them. They're, they're telling us what they really believe, but it may not really be the the full story. You know, there are often factors at play that influence people's decisions that they're not aware of. And I think when, uh, you know, when marketers realize that, it's very helpful because then you can start to use the research in, in different ways. Um, and there are actually some behavioral science informed um, methods of research that, that try to kind of get to the, the real reasons, the implicit actions, you know. So I think that's one answer. And then and the other uh, answer is I think sometimes behavioral science shines a light on the fact that there are some counterintuitive uh, things, messages that we could put out there that maybe we wouldn't think to use, but actually can be very, very valuable. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, loss aversion, you know, instead of saying save $100 today, you can say you're going to have to pay $100 tomorrow, you know, and you might think to yourself, oh, why, why would you phrase that in a negative way? You know, that's terrible. No, no, no. But, you know, it turns out that actually, that actually could be the, the more motivating way to do it. Um, we did some work for, uh, for a client where we use the reciprocity principle and it was a client that was um, selling financial services through financial advisors, and the financial advisors could work with, you know, a handful of different providers. And over time, some financial advisors just kind of fell off the wagon or fell by the wayside. And so they had this group of financial advisors that up until a year or so ago had worked with them, and then they'd stopped, and they had tried to call them and email them and reactivate them, and they, they hadn't really gotten anywhere. So they came to us and they said, you know, we, wanna, we want your help reactivating them. Let's send them a gift. And so right away you would say, now that's counterintuitive. Why would you spend the money to send a gift to people who 
or are no longer doing business with you, why not, if you're going to spend that money, you know, spend on other people that are doing business with you to reinforce the positive behavior, right? I mean, that seems to make sense, right? Uh, it seems counterintuitive that you would send a gift to someone who, over a year ago, mind you, stopped doing business. <laughs> right. Not like just recently, right. where maybe you'll quickly reel them back in. I mean, it's, it's a year ago, you've tried, they've really indicated you know, no interest. But anyway, we, we sent out a gift and, uh, they not only reactivated a bunch of people, they, they said that the return on the investment for the campaign was $68 million. Oh my so, gosh. you know, it's like, yeah, you know, so I think in, again, if you didn't understand behavioral science, if you didn't understand the reciprocity principle, which is basically when you give someone something, they feel obliged to return the favor. They, they feel obliged to answer in kind. Um, and they actually sometimes will even give you back more just to kind of get out of that sense of the idea that they owe you something. And the mm-hmm. wonderful thing about the reciprocity principle is, you know, it's built into us, you know, I think since, since you know, probably back in, you know, the early days of, of mankind where we really needed to get along because we would, you know, we'd, we would die if we got ostracized. So we're, you know, we're cooperative, we're civil, civil we're, you know, we, we try to get along. And um, so, so the wonderful thing is, even if you didn't ask for a favor, once it's in your hands, it still triggers this idea of reciprocity. You know, you could say like, look, you know, it's one thing if I ask you to do me a favor, then I'm going to feel like I have to do one for you. But, and this is true, but even if, you know, if somebody gives you something without your asking, you still kind of feel like, uh, you know, it, it's why, you know, the address labels and the fundraising appeals work yep. so well, you know. But yeah. uh, so, um, so again, a little bit counterintuitive, but uh, but absolutely an example of, you know, how behavioral science, understanding behavioral science can help marketers get that, um, you know, that response that they're looking for. Yeah, I th- it's interesting as you say that it, it brings to mind the, the story you brought up earlier of your boss and kind of thinking of the tagline for AT&T in different pieces. And he, he he struck on that, but it wasn't because of the science. It was because of experience and kind of various different pieces. And what I hear you saying is that behavioral science now allows us to come upon some of those ahas and maybe some ahas that we might not have even thought of before in a much more structured and uh, efficient way. And I I love that concept as we think about it. It's one of the things that uh, Tim and I have talked about in the past is this idea that, you know, behavioral science is oftentimes is just putting names and really understanding, you know, common phenomena. The idea of uh, the restaurateur putting the people at the front of the restaurant in, in the windows, you know, because, uh, well, when we do that, we get more people in. Well, he doesn't know it's social proof, but it doesn't matter, right? It, he does it. But this is a way to kind of jumpstart some of those um, thinking patterns and different ways of, of looking at the uh, the situation that you're in. Yeah, I, I look at it. The book is 288 pages, 17 chapters, and about 25 different tactics. And I say it's it's a great place to start to figure out what you're going to test. You know, like yeah. you know what your problem is. You know the you know the answer that you want to get to or the action you want to get to. You go through this and you're like, all right, these are going to give me some things that will you know help me test in a smart way. Is everyone going to work for everyone every time? No, of course not. You know, but uh, you're better armed this way because you're like, all right, I you know I, I'm kind of stacking the deck in my favor and I'm making it more likely that something is going to work or something is going to work even better. You know, and maybe in some cases. It'll be like, oh, I didn't know that that was that. I didn't know that was called that, but okay, that's why. That's why what I'm doing currently works. Or it might be like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. And that's the wonderful thing about all 25 of them being in one place. You know, it's like a hands-on handbook. You know, you're like, all right, it's a good little refresher in some cases. It's a an idea starter in other cases. And it's it's also, you know, in some cases, just new information. It's like, yeah, even when I was researching the book, I came upon some things. I was like, I didn't even know that. Wow. That, you know, got to try that. Got to put that in my bag of tricks. Uh, that's very cool. I, I just love that you happen to know off the top of your head, it's 288, 288 pages. That is an author who loves her book. And, <laughs> I, and, and I love that. Who, who You've spent a lot of time creating it and, and um and I'm glad that you love it, for, frankly. I wanted to switch over and talk about a story that you brought up in the book about Adele. And uh, this idea that in 2021, she releases a, you know, an album and Spotify, you know, puts it out. And in, in the world of Spotify, it's shuffled. And Adele says, no, 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 no. This, this record was, was created in such a way that these songs should be played in order. And um, and you talk about it as a, a sort of as defaults 
And I, I was I was wondering if you could actually maybe relay that story, talk a little bit about the importance of defaults, and then we're going to get into music. Okay, yeah. I thought this was music. You're talking music already. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, yeah. First I was like, Dell? You mean the computer company? Oh, oh, Adele. Right. Okay, yes. Adele, yeah, sorry. Yes. Um, yes. Um, yeah, so it's it's defaults and it's also, you know, this, this idea of choice architecture. So the way choices are presented kind of influences uh, the decisions people make about them. So with Spotify, they would, you know, just automatically have things on, on shuffle or random. So, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily the way Adele or any artist laid the tracks down. It would, you know, things would just play unless you went in and toggled the right switch. You know, you'd have to physically go in and, and change it. But if you left things the way they were, you know, you were just going to not hear it the way Adele or any other artist had put the tracks down. It was just going to be kind of in a random fashion. And she actually went to Spotify and said, look, I did this in a particular order for a particular reason. And I want my listeners to hear it the way I want them to hear it, the way I intended for them to hear it. And she actually, you know, got this major victory. So now things changed. And in the past, the default was you'd be on shuffle. And now the default is you're going to listen to it the way the artist meant it to be listened to unless you go in and you change the default, you know. So and and the thing about defaults is very often we don't change them. You know, we either we're, we're too lazy or in some cases there's kind of this implied authority. You know, it's like, oh, well, they must have it this way for a reason. Like this is a superior reason. This is the best setting to have it on, you know. So so sometimes we, we just don't think to change it. Other times we think, well, I'm not really, I'm not an expert, but if they think this is the way it should be, they're the experts. I'll leave it that way. But um, so it was, it was kind of a, it was a big victory for her. And, and I remember reading it and I was, you know, is at the right time as I was writing the book, I'm like, boom, that's going right in there because it's, it's, uh, you know, so applicable. Well, and, and I didn't even know there was a toggle switch that I could change that. So the default is going to be the default because it was, I was unaware that there was even a choice. So. And Spotify didn't respond when I asked for the same thing about my records. I, I just wonder why that was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the email got lost. Scale. I don't know. Scale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, uh, so let, let's turn this. Uh, we're going to transition from defaults in general to do you tend to listen to music in the order that it was presented on a record? I think I do. Cool. Let, let, well, let, if you're in broad, if you listen to Broadways, it, it's you're telling well, a story, right? That, yeah, and, the story's going to build. I mean, you yep. can, I mean, obviously, you can just listen to some of the 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 things, but it, there's a there's a narrative to the there's an art, there's the flow, there's all of that. I could also argue, though, that sometimes you just want a little send in the clowns. You know, you just want Sondheim <laughs> just to have one song. You know, you want Bernadette Peters on that that one tune and. That's that's kind of all all I need, and then I can move on to South Pacific or you know, <laughs> you know or something else. But but how about you, Nancy? Actually, this is this is not about me. This is about you. So forgive me. I'm, so, I'm sorry. What? Yeah. So how? So you listen. You, you said you tend to listen in order. And do you do that with shows, with Broadway shows? Do you so, tend to actually tee them up and just go start to finish? Yeah, I I will. I, you know, it's not that I don't have my favorites. I do. You know, a little Officer Krupke would be fine from West Side Story. I, you know, I just I love the lyrics sometimes, and the you know the just kind of the rhymes that you know that are the rhyming schemes or the you know the um, the turns of phrase that you know I enjoy. But but basically, yeah, I I will have a tendency to just kind of if I'm gonna put a you know a, a CD in or put an album on just. Go from start to finish and, uh, it, you know, and, you know, to Kurt's point, uh, even more so with Broadway because it does allow you to just kind of relive the show, which is lovely. Um, but just, I don't know, I'm, I have a tendency to, uh, you know, to, to be more of a passive listener, I guess, than an active listener. So I'll choose, you know, what I want to listen to and I'll put it on and, and there it will be and I'll just let it play through. Um, but, but it, I will say it has less to do with, um, my thinking, oh, that's the way the artist intended, and and probably more to do with my just, yeah, I'm going to put this on and just let it play, you know. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, it's it's Nancy, you're a person after my own heart, though, as you talk about lyrics, right? Because lyrics for me, it's it's interesting. Tim and myself and another friend of ours have, during COVID, we got on, um, you know, on <laughs> oh, Zoom right. calls and we we share music with each other, and <laughs> and I realized I'm like going. 
Oh, some of the music you guys like, you like it because of the riffs and the guitars and all the, all the musical components. And I'm like going, I don't get this. I'm like there. And then, and then I put on mine and it's all about the lyrics. It's all like, this is like, do you hear that, that twist of phrase that they used and how they used it? So you and me, I think we probably get, get, uh, our musical tastes would probably, uh, fall in, in, uh, in alignment there. So if you, Nancy, if you had to uh, spend a, a year on a desert island, let's, let's ask the desert island question of you. I'm, I know that you've heard this before. But, but, and you had two artists, full catalogs to take with you. Um, any any combination of these two artists, what what two uh, musical artists would you take with you? So I think I'd go with the Beatles, right? Because there's a wide range there, and um, then it's going to have to be one of the one of the Broadway ones. Um, I do like I do like Wicked, so and I do like Pippin, so maybe we'll go with Schwartz. Maybe we'll go with Stephen Schwartz. Stephen Schwartz, okay. There's not a bad decision there. Not, not bad. But it's interesting that you, that it sounded like you're, you're bringing up the, the Beatles for the variety of, of sounds, right? And, and platforms and everything from like their early stuff is just so poppy and sugary and, and, you know, snip snap. But, and you get to, you know, rubber sole and it starts to unfold and, and, and almost fall apart, right? When you get to Sgt. Pepper, it's a totally different world. So I'm thinking I don't have a lot of faith in being rescued, so I might be on this island oh. for a long, long time, right? <laughs> so I was thinking, all right, there's, I mean, I, you know, I grew up with the Beatles, so, you know, and there's something to be said. I, I heard this recently, that the music you heard when you were, like, kind of in your formative years, that's the music you return to, right? And, um, and, and that's, you know, that's what I grew up with. But then as I thought about it, I'm like, okay, this is, you know, this is pretty serious. Cause I, like I said, I was at, I, I exercise walk and I listen to you guys all the time. And so I'm interested to hear what people say. And I used to think of myself, I wonder what I would answer. Never dreaming I'd ever have the opportunity to answer, but I wonder what I would answer, you know? And I was Here like, you, you know, are. it would, it, it, I could see myself doing the Beatles because there is so much, you know, yeah. there is such a range that, um, you know, it, it, I could be there for a long, long time on that island, and this would kind of get me through. Yeah, they, they, it's a it's a popular pick, and I think part of it is just because of that the the, the sheer volume and and differentiation of of the music that they have, and so fantastic. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for being a guest on Behavior Grooves. It was a fantastic conversation, and just thanks. Kurt and Tim, thank you so very much. Uh, it, it was uh, just awesome to be here. I, I listen to you all the time. I can't believe I'm actually talking to you. So thank you so much. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on our discussion with Nancy, take a deep dive into some of the topics, and talk about whatever else comes into our drained and veined brains. Man, there we go. Ooh, drained in vain. Yeah. Ooh. And we have some disdain about the pain that we're going to, uh, I'm trying to find another word that rhymes and I can't. There you go. But yeah. 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 Well, it's the main thing that we want to talk about, right? Ah. It's, it's, it's the main claim. Yeah. And, and it, it, it even is bigger than Ukraine. And uh, it, it will give nobody a migraine uh, when we talk about the insane, uh, you know, refrain. Flame. Uh, flame. <laughs> oh my. I should definitely not be a rhymer or rapper. That's all I have but, to say. There you go. But you, you are, you are a songwriter. You, uh. You've already done it. So that's, that's, uh, you, you may not be doing a lot of it in the future, but you did, you did it. Yeah, so. well, you know. Okay. But you, all right, so I think we teed this up in the intro. We want to talk about rhyme as reason effect. We want to talk about the nine effect. Um, but before we go to either of those, Tim, I just want to, I, I want to talk about this because we have a couple other um, interviews coming up in the in the near future that are kind of specific on an industry or different pieces like this is marketing and mm -hmm. the, the fascinating thing that i love about behavioral science is that we're talking about these behavioral science insights with nancy and the entire time i'm sitting there thinking well, you can apply this inside of work you can apply this to your your business if you're a right. uh small business owner, you can apply this to the community group that you work with. That The applications of these are not just around marketing. They are around, you know, 
life and business as we usually talk about in the intro. Yeah, very horizontal, right? They they cross lots and lots of, of industries and applications, even within an organization. I love thinking about even with inside an organization, it's not just marketing, but it can also um, apply to HR, of course, mm-hmm. right? Big, obvious stuff. But what about risk and compliance or engineering or, I mean, any 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 opportunity that we have to interface with human beings, guess what? We, we can apply behavioral science. And, and the insights and the way that Nancy talked about what she's talking about. So, for instance, uh, we'll talk about, you know, Rhyme is reason effect. And I'm sitting there going, we do a ton of work with companies. My company, the Lantern Group, does a ton of work with companies on communicating internally um, with employees. And I'm just sitting here going, we don't rhyme enough, right? We don't, we don't, (laughs) we don't take those moments to really, um, impact those the memory in different facets of within an organization to say hey let's let's create a tagline for this program and make it rhyme let's use rhyming in our the speech that the that the president or the general manager is going to to give to the employees we don't use some of the other insights um that nancy talked about enough and so i'm sitting here writing down all of these things you know we talked with jonah berger before i was thinking the same thing god i gotta be using more concrete words so instead of talking about you know over 50 percent of us i need to be saying 54 percent of you know our employees do x as opposed to or 54.4 percent of our employees do x right those are the things that i think are going to be um this application across multitude of fields so i just want to put that on the table before we Got into I'm the, glad you. The, the show. I'm glad you did. And and I want. I just also want to say. Uh, uh, let's let's transition here to Rhyme's reason effect. That it is a very powerful effect, right? It's part of the fluency uh, effects. Okay. And you know, so uh, so fluency has been researched. You know, going back to Richard Nisbet and Tim Wilson in the late 1970s. Wow. When they when they started sort of framing it as like a halo, like they started realizing that. That we actually, when we hear things that, that rhyme, for instance, or they're, they're overtly familiar, then we just take them as more credible. They become more accurate. They be, you know, that they really take on kind of a, a life of their own when it's easy for us to grasp and easy for us to understand. And that's where the fluency concept comes in. It wasn't deeply studied until the 2000s, though. Wow. Um, and there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of researchers who have done some really good work on it. But, yeah. Uh, well, but, well, we but, talked with Richard Nisbet in episode 249, so we didn't talk about this per se, but I think it's, Interesting when you talk about fluency and the reason why rhyming works, right? This idea yeah. that it's easier to come to mind. Uh, there's that element that it's more memorable. I think it, you talk about it in songs, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, do, oh, yeah. do, I mean, you don't write a song. I mean, lots of people do write songs that don't rhyme, but you yes. know, rhyming is one of those key tenets of songwriting. Right. I mean, how do you use it? The songs that get to the top of the hit list are almost always have have rhyme schemes that um, Alan Kruger did some work on this. He's an economist. Uh, he was an economist. He has passed away. Uh, but he was a, a, an economist, I think, at Yale. And he did some work on what makes a top 10 hit. And rhyme schemes are a key part of it. it and it's because of that fluency. It's because we process it in a way that, oh, it's easier for us to listen to. It's more pleasing, right? It's more memorable when we have that fluency, when we have that rhyme scheme. And uh, so it becomes it becomes the norm in songwriting to do it. Now, there are plenty of songwriters that go outside of those bounds very effectively. Right. How, however, that's not the norm, and it's not the way to get to number one hits. And the idea that Nancy brings is marketers and other people, as we've just talked about, beyond marketing, should be using this because 
that helps in bringing that memorability, that that ease of recall, the the element of, hey, I find this more pleasing than other ways. So if I am a marketer and I'm trying to sell something, you what do you want? You want people to process that information faster so it feels right. You want them to believe it, uh, right? Isn't part of fluency that it's more believable once you get that? You get a yep. quick recall. All of that is an advantage for marketers. It really is. A uh, quick quiz, uh, Kurt. I just want to, I just want to throw you some, some brands and just see if, if you have a recollection of the brand stories or the, the taglines that went with them. All right. So, I'm closing so my eyes. So I'm not seeing the script. Here we go. Okay. Nationwide insurance. Uh, nationwide is by your side. Is, uh, yeah, I think so. Is on, on your side. On your yeah, side. Right. On your side. See, I'm not looking but, people. This is, this yeah. is real. Testing my my whole thing here. Okay, what about Timex? Oh, keeps a tick. Uh, keep t- takes a licking and keeps on ticking. That's easy. Yeah, now, and and that's a brand that like, we don't even see that hardly anymore. I right? know. You, you and I are old enough to to remember Kurt Gowdy on television. You know, uh, making oh, those well, uh, takes a licking and keeps and, on and, ticking. And I can kind of remember. It's like the the. The watch gets dropped and beaten up, beaten yes. up, and it's in a tire one time. Like they find it in the, uh, you know, after it's gone through a, t- uh, like been riding in a tire and it still works. And of course, uh, and what's interesting for me on that one, I mean, actually, some all of these, well, nationwide uh, on your side has the name in it, but Timex, it's not saying, you know, That's is right. the Bex or, you know, it's not rhyming with Timex. It's just having a tagline that rhymes with it. That same, uh, Folgers was the same way. The best part of waking up is the Folgers in your cup. Yeah. You know, uh, they have the they have the brand name in the tagline, but they're not rhyming with Folgers. Yeah. They're it's it's the cup, which, of course, is a fantastic, you know, association to have with the brand waking up and uh, in your cup, and it's inter. I well, I won't go into that, but I, I I've done. Uh, I use this example a lot that they they really did an interesting thing with their marketing when Folgers did it, and I think I for anybody who is of a certain age, if I just start mentioning, um, imagine this this TV commercial, right? Uh, picture a car driving up uh, on a snowy kind of curved driveway. Kid gets out. Pecks a bag over his shoulder, opens the door. All of a sudden, this little girl runs down and yells, Peter! And he goes, shh. And then they go into the kitchen and it's the, and it's, they're brewing a cup of coffee. And with that coffee, what they, what you see was really interesting. So first off, can, and you hear a can opener and it goes, shh. And yeah. then, you see the 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 coffee percolating and you see the steam coming off of the percolating and then cut to a scene upstairs and you see uh, what you now assume is a mother and father and they're being woken up by the smell of the, the coffee smell. And then you get this reunion of this kid who had come home from college, basically. And it is this, they, they aired, they aired that commercial for multitude of years only at Christmas time. But it was one of those key pieces where Folgers was like in the number third position and they moved to the number one position in coffee. And, you know, the, as you said, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. Uh, so that rhyme that remembered it, but it's that waking up and cup and they visually showed that in the, uh, in the, um, commercial by having, you know, that sound and the steam and all of those things, which is really interesting. And I just went way too long on talking about that. We could have just put a link and Groovers could just check out the link. But no, you, you described it fantastically oh, anyway. for the last 35 minutes. I think that that was great. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners. I get that kind of passionate about some of this stuff and I'm not even a marketer. All right. All right, Tim. I'm going to ask you real quick though. Um, Pepto-Bismol. Tagline. Pepto-Bismol was plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. I, you, it, has, it goes to a jingle and you sing it. I, that's the yeah. one I thought. There you go. All right. Yeah, of course. Perfectly. Uh, okay. So let, let, let's move on to the nine effect. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, first of all, what is the nine effect? Let's just, just 
just reiterate that for for listeners. What's the power of nine? Why why is it important? You tell me. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I was actually asking. Oh, you. I'm but sorry. I can, no, I can go. No, 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 no. Go ahead. No, no, no. No, uh, but it for me resonates most in retail. It's the it's the uh, twenty nine ninety nine price on something. So it's twenty nine dollars and ninety nine cents U.S. That is. Um, with uh, rather than saying thirty dollars, yep. right? And and the idea behind that, when I think the early research was done on this, like in the nineteen seventies, was that oh, twenty nine ninety nine will look like it's less money than thirty dollars, and that turns out to largely be the case. Um, that that actually turns out to be the case. There has been, I think, some additional work by Anderson and Semester. Okay. That recently, they're from MIT and Penn, I think, uh, but they've de- demonstrated that the effect is stronger in retail when customers are less familiar with the pri- with a price oh. of something. So, so it, you can't just you can't just have something that everybody knows the price to, uh, and give it a ninety nine at the end and expect that pe- that you're going to think, well, it's actually less expensive. Yeah. Um, well, and, I, and I like how also Nancy talked about it and this idea of things that happen uh, when you're 20, you know, people are more likely to run a marathon when they're 29 than when they're 30, 39 than when they're 40, 49 than when they're 50. And it's this, um, as she talked about, temporal landmarks that we have. And nine is a big because it's a decade and we, we think about those. And so, um, I think nine has that power too, because when we, the way that we process numbers is we're on a decile system. It's a 10 system. And so we know that nine is one less. It's not and doesn't go to eleven, Tim. It goes to nine. It's one less. You see, I don't have to turn it up. But it's one louder. It's one la- less loud. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and that I, I, I'm glad that you brought up this idea of temporal landmarks because uh, we do we we easily count things in ten. We are sort of programmed for that, and um, and these nines demarcate the end of that. Of, of whatever that first 10 is, yep. right? We're getting to the end of it. And it's a, it's an important jumping off, uh, point. Um, I think Adam Alter and Hal Hirschfield have, have done a lot of work on that. And we're actually going to be talking to Adam yeah. in a couple of weeks. Couple of so weeks, so that'll that, be good. that should be an interesting discussion. Yeah. If anybody, uh, has questions that you want us to ask, uh, Adam, um, send it to us in, in social media. All right, Tim, I want to end on this. How can we rhyme? For behavioral groups, how can we how can we how can we take this? What about this? What about this? All right, behavioral grooves gives you the moves. Have you been, have you been like working on this? Yes, I have. I have been. I've been. This is. I've been thinking about this. Right. We have to. We we okay. we, we got to take the information that we get from our our guests and and use it. Okay. What what else? What else? Well, uh, what about? Get on the move with behavioral groups. Ooh, I like that. Right. Or improve your moves with behavioral groups. Uh, how about behavioral grooves is the right move for you? There you go. <laughs> or you or, yeah, improve your groove with behavioral grooves. I like that. There we go. All right. All right, listeners, we might have okay. to have a poll out there uh, about which, which of our taglines we might be um, moving with, you know. Or moving away from. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there are many, many more things uh, to talk about from our conversation with Nancy. But um, since I went so long on Folgers in your cup, we're going to have to just leave it there. Okay. Well, that's totally cool, Kurt. Uh, But above and beyond the things that we covered in our conversation with Nancy, there are many practical tips in the book. So if you're a marketer, we would like you to add this to your list. And even if you're not a marketer, read the book because it gives you really insightful tips that you can use. So there you go. Uh, and speaking of list, Tim, how about taking something off of your list, li- listeners by leaving us a quick rating or a short review right now? That way you won't have to worry about doing it later uh, and you can just get it done. I think there's some kind of a behavioral bias in there somewhere. Do you think so? I'm sure, I'm sure there probably is. There's a behavioral bias. There's a behavioral insight in almost everything that we do, right? Um, but if you'll have to wait until next time to hear exactly what that bias is, 
I don't know why. We'll have to wait because we're gonna we're gonna go out and research it or something. I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Kurt, thanks. Groovers, thanks. Uh, time to say thanks for listening, and we hope that uh, you're able to take home some cool ideas from Nancy's work and put them to use this week as you go out and find your groove. 